Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Mike and Jude are joined this week by Christopher B. Johnstone, former National Security Council Director for East Asia under President Biden and Director for Japan and Oceania Affairs under President Obama to discuss Japan's evolving relationships in an increasingly turbulent international environment. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, joined as always by my colleague Jude Blanchett and CSIS colleague and long-standing Asia expert, Japan Hand, national security official turned scholar, Chris Johnstone from CSIS. Welcome, Chris. Great to be here, Mike and Jude. Thanks very much. So I've known you for a long time. A lot of people would know who you are, but tell us first how you got into this field, the path from studying Japan to being a senior official and, and working in the Pentagon and other agencies in the White House. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, uh, and I always say this to young people starting out, never think you're going to map your whole career out early on because things happen that you don't expect. I never anticipated that I would work on Japan. I did the JET program on a whim, English teaching program in Japan after college, had never had any experience in East Asia before, got hooked, stayed two years instead of one, decided I wanted to study it when I got to my master's program at Princeton, went back, did a little bit of uh, language study between my two years. And sort of picked it up from there. Now, when I was in graduate school, I was just convinced that I was going to do the foreign service. That was going to be my career for a variety of reasons that didn't work out. So I had to find sort of other ways into the national security apparatus. I was working at a a think tank, the Asia Pacific Center for Security Studies in Hawaii. When I met the DCI representative to PACOM at the time, the CIA's representative to the command, who started to talk to me about joining the intelligence community. And I did. Never thought about it before and ended up spending 10 years inside the CIA as an analyst working on Northeast Asia issues. And the great thing about CIA, it taught some very transferable skills, how to brief, how to write in a cogent way, how to distill complex issues for policymakers, help them understand their choices. Did that for about 10 years, had an overseas tour in Tokyo, actually, and then decided I was ready to do policy. Intelligence and the, and the agency, wonderful place to work. But I felt like I wanted to actually be part of making decisions. So I went to OSD, had the opportunity to go down to the Pentagon uh, and really became an alliance manager for the next 10 plus years and primarily on Japan. But I also did work on Korea a little bit on Taiwan, also on the relationship with Australia, and then also on our relationships in South and Southeast Asia as well. And during that time, I had two separate tours on the on the NSC, which we can talk more about, but um, uh, glutton for punishment, I guess. I went back twice, but I really had the, the opportunity through that career to see a real arc of progression in the U.S.-Japan alliance and our strategy in Asia more broadly. Jed, I was a Mumbusho English fellow in rural Japan, which was the JET program probably a year or two before you did it. I also didn't intend to become a Japan expert. I think the U.S. government and academia are littered with Japan experts who don't know how they got there. It was not their plan. Uh, I told my Japanese counterparts, you know, at one point when I was on the NSC staff, you know, there's six directors, director level folks working on Asia in the Obama administration. Three of us at the time had been jets, not all working on Japan, of course, but working on different parts of Asia. I mean, that's that really speaks to the soft power of that program. It is remarkable, this program, which now I gather brings thousands from the U.S., Australia, U.K., and elsewhere to teach English, teach sport in Japan. The idea originally when I started was to help Japanese learn English, and I'm not sure how well it succeeded on that front, maybe to some extent, 
But what it's done is created this incredible cadre. I'm told there are over 120 jets in the Foreign Service, and you find them in the Australian, Canadian, UK service. And it really has been part of the sort of sinews of these alliances and these relationships. So it's incredible. So you did intel. And when Chris was in the intelligence community and I was in the White House, he was our go-to guy on Japan, helping us build new relationships, you know, and, and finding ways to do new things in energy in the Middle East and so forth. But Chris, when you went, you did the intelligence community, defense, NSC at pretty senior levels. How have you seen the process evolve on overall strategic thinking about Asia as a whole. Is your experience that we're getting better at it or did you grow more concerned the more time you spend at senior levels of government? I think we are getting better at it. You know, I joined the Pentagon in June of 2010, which if you if you remember, that's sort of right at the end of Hatoyama, uh, a really difficult period in US-Japan relations. Frankly, we were pretty focused on just holding together the US military presence, keeping the relationship on track. Not a lot of long-term strategic thinking about where to take the relationship because it frankly just didn't seem possible. Things got better from there, of course. You know, I think certainly by the time of Prime Minister Noda in 2012, the last of the DPJ prime ministers, we were, we were getting real work done. But still, there wasn't a sense, I would argue, that Japan was a strategic partner in a very deep way. And I think that's what began to change over the last um, number of years. Now, maybe you have a different memory of, of your time with Koizumi. I think there was a whole lot of possibility at that time. But I think it's fair to say that we took a step backward for a while in the relationship. And so we began to rebuild it during the Obama years. I do think, you know, for all the focus on the Asia rebalance, it was in some ways, I think, fair to say more rhetorical than real. I think there wasn't the same sort of deep commitment in the value of alliance relationships at that time that you see very much under the Biden administration today. I'm struck by that evolution in U.S. policy, the sense of value of an alliance relationship and the importance, the focus on empowering those relationships in the Indo-Pacific now, not just Japan. I mean, I think we're seeing some real manifestations of that with Japan now, but also with Australia, of course, with Korea, even with the Philippines to some extent. So I think you've seen a, a increasing appreciation of the importance of allies to our Indo-Pacific strategy that is much more deeply rooted today than it was when I first got into policy at OSD. The White House Indo-Pacific strategy, which came out early last year, which I gather you worked on, I counted uh, being a policy geek, and it mentions allies and partners over 30 times, China maybe three or four times. And the people who the administration brought in, Kurt, Dan Crittenbrink, yourself, are allies people, allies first. But when you were there in the Pentagon in 2010, 11, 12, that was not the consensus. I mean, there was this flirtation with Xi Jinping's new model of great power relations, pushed on strategic reassurance, real hesitation in parts of the administration about freedom of navigation operations, even about the defense guidelines and the changes that Abe was foreshadowing on the Constitution. I don't know how much you can tell us, but my sense is that within the Pentagon, there was a bit of trench warfare against other parts of the administration to actually do something with these alliances, because not everyone was sold on the future alliances. And a lot of people were attracted to, you know, a new relationship with China built on climate change cooperation, and other things. And we know you know, John Kerry, Susan Rice, and others came into the government with a different view of how the world worked. Was that something that you just patiently dealt with? Did the Pentagon have to sort of fight these battles one at a time? How did you, in the end, see what we saw, which was the Obama administration did really embrace 
the new defense guidelines of Japan and a much more robust alliance policy. Yeah, I think there's no question, Mike, that is certainly in the early years of the Obama administration that we really sort of, I think for those of us who worked on alliances, we kind of labored in obscurity. It was not the focus, not a sense that alliances had the same sort of strategic value that they had had, certainly during the Cold War, even during the early years of the post 9-11 era. I think a few things began to change that, right? I think for Japan, a key turning point was the tsunami relief effort post-March 2011, in which, you know, the sort of the level of, of U.S. support to Japan, humanitarian assistance, dealing with the incredible destruction of that earthquake and tsunami and then the nuclear accident that followed, I think really reaffirmed for the Japanese public the value of the relationship with the United States. I think during this period, also North Korea begins to accelerate its nuclear and and missile programs in a way that's pretty concerning. And we begin to see indications of Chinese behavior that sharpens the focus on the China challenge. So the uptick in tensions over the Senkaku Islands, which begin to really take off in 2010, intensify 2011, 2012. Chinese activity in the South China Sea, which becomes apparent 2014, 2015, and the land reclamation efforts there. The pressure you begin to see on the Philippines around Scarborough, the agreement, which didn't result in much change, really, in 2015 uh, with Xi Jinping related to cyber-enabled theft of U.S. commercial property. I think through those early parts of the Obama administration into the first part of the second term, I think you do see a sharpening focus on challenges related to China. But that does not mean that the administration was supportive of a wholehearted embrace of alliances, right? I mean, this was a time when there was great caution about freedom of navigation operations Taiwan Strait transits, even exercises. There was a system put in place that basically the NSC sought visibility into all major U.S. military exercises planned uh, in the theater in advance uh, and would occasionally weigh in and suggest we needed to change the timing of those events. So you're right, there was still an emphasis on preserving what was perceived to be possible in a cooperative relationship with China. But I do think the turn begins the turn toward a tougher approach on China begins maybe sort of 2014-ish in the administration. It is interesting, though. I mean, I look back on my first time on the NSC. I look back on policy debates that were really fraught and contentious over things that now seem like insignificant, like putting ZTE on the entities list. I mean, that was high-level policy debate, right? So it shows how much we've moved. But those debates were starting to happen. I think that's the point. And then it accelerated thereafter. And now on, in, the, in the Biden administration, just as you said in the IPS, very heavy emphasis on alliances in some new ways. Just to add to that, I think well, what I find distinctive about this approach is it's not just that alliances are useful and valuable in a way of you know, giving the United States diplomatic leverage and partners in pushing particular issues. There is an explicit focus on empowering, strengthening the capacity and the voice of allies. And you see this particularly on the defense side, right? The decision to create AUKUS and to support Australia's acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines. You see it with South Korea in the early decision to lift remaining limits on South Korean missile forces. 
And now you see it in the wholehearted embrace of what Kishida has announced in these new national security strategies, which I would submit, you know, five, six years ago, some of that would not have been particularly welcome in Washington, even during perhaps my first time on the NSC. But now the environment is just very, very different. Chris, can I ask a question slightly out of my lane, but following up on this, and this is as a pure outsider asking two folks who've been in administrations and and you, Chris, having gone over so many administrations, I'm trying to understand the role of the Trump administration in furthering conversations that are now sort of banal or routine today. You just outlined how Xi Jinping in his own way has helped accelerate some of these discussions and move from a debate about where China is going to go to now a confirmation of its path. Where would the conversation be if instead of the Trump administration really going forcefully on China, we'd had a interregnum administration that kind of held the line or a third constitutionally impossible, but a third term Obama? Was this happening anyway because of Xi Jinping really forcing discussions? I'm just trying to figure out how much Trump played a positive role in accelerating. We think we can all list the damages, but. That's a great counterfactual question, Jude. I, I think we would have gotten there eventually, but I think it would have been slower. I think the Trump administration's willingness to break some of the longstanding conventional wisdom on foreign policy toward Asia and the China relationship, obviously some of that was quite problematic. But in other ways, I think it did accelerate a debate that had we stayed on a sort of more conventional path, we would have gotten there. But my guess is we still wouldn't be there now, perhaps. And it made it possible to pick up on elements of the strategy that made sense to continue. Now, the one thing, of course, that the Trump administration didn't place the same emphasis on is is alliances. The U.S.-Japan relationship in general did pretty well. I thought Abe was masterful at managing his relationship with President Trump. He was also lucky in some ways that certain things like host nation support agreements didn't pop during the Trump administration's period in office. So there's some good luck, too, there. But he handled the relationship well. Beyond that, of course, alliances were very much under strain in the region. So taking the sort of the sharper approach on China and combining it with a really robust focus on alliances is the innovation of of the Biden administration. And I think, you know, even now that I'm on the outside, I think by and large, it's been pretty successful. I'm going to grab the steering wheel and wrench it in an entirely different direction now, Chris, which is I wanted to now ask you about your assessment of the Sino-Japanese relationship. But I wonder if I can first do that by asking you to put aside great power competition. Oftentimes, the way we think about China and Japan is through the prism of the United States or or great power competition. But what's your sense of just the state of the bilateral relationship on, we'll get to the sort of defense security issues, but what is the health of the relationship, which is robust in so many ways, economically, technologically, you know, there's a lot of two-way trade business investment going on between the two countries. So first, could you just give us your sense of the health of that relationship? And then I wanted to ask you a few questions about the thornier elements of it. Sure. Yeah. So as you say, Jude, the economic relationship remains extraordinarily deep. China continues to be by far Japan's largest trading partner, still a location of significant Japanese manufacturing investment that continues to this day. When this administration, when the when the Kishida administration talks about the relationship with China, they have a particular formulation that they use in, in describing what they seek, which is a constructive and stable relationship, which enables what they continue to see as the mutual benefits of economic interdependence. Now, at a political level, the relationship is quite difficult. Certainly sentiment in the Japanese public toward China 
is quite low. I was looking at public opinion polls today. There's a, a cabinet office does an annual poll that looks at sentiment toward various relationships. The most recent one from last year says that 77% of the Japanese public say they do not feel feelings of friendship toward China. 81% describe relations as not good. So at a political level, the relationship is quite fraught. Continuing pressure around the Senkaku Islands, that that is a sort of unrelenting, deep concern about China's military modernization, which of course is not new, but continues to manifest in various ways that Japan gets concerned about. Recently, the focus in particular has been on China's nuclear modernization and the lack of transparency surrounding that. And then Xi Jinping's you know, explicit alignment with Putin in just a few days before the invasion of Ukraine. So all of this, I think, has contributed to the background that made Japan's national security strategy and its national defense strategy, which we should talk about because it really represents, in my view, unprecedented change. But it is also true that I think at the end of the day, the Japanese do seek stability in the economic relationship. They don't want that to change. When I go to, to Tokyo and talk to corporate executives, you know, the China market is deeply important to a whole range of Japanese industries. They don't want to see that change. So it's this duality, right? And I think, you know, Mike, you've written about this in your book, the duality of a robust defense posture increasingly in Japan, diplomacy focused on upholding the free and open Indo-Pacific, but combined with, you know, a desire to see economic ties sustained and even deepened. And so there's a lot of discomfort in Tokyo about the lack of high-level communication channels during the COVID years. And there's been something of an effort to rebuild those that began with National Security Advisor Akiba's visit to China in August. Now, of course, followed by Prime Minister Kishida's meeting with Xi Jinping in Bangkok. I expect you're going to see a lot of effort to sustain and build upon those senior-level ties. I'll turn it over to Mike in a minute. I just want just to follow up on this is how China is approaching management of the relationship. You mentioned the meeting in August, you know, marathon meeting, seven hours. Then we had the meeting in November. And then China repays the favor by launching some naval exercises that skirt just off of Japan. Of course, we've seen another round of Sino-Russian operations further south. But nonetheless, if you were trying to calm Japan down and build on some of the meetings in August and November, I would think it would be an opportune time for China to shut up and not be saber rattling, but they seem incapable of doing that. How do you think China is thinking about management of this relationship? It seems that so much of their focus is on their response to the national security strategy. And still, China seems to have a very simplistic, broken theory of deterrence, which isn't thinking in a holistic manner about but if we do military deterrence here, that will undo some of the diplomatic sort of ground that we've gained here. It seems like they don't able to put these two together. I don't know if you see it that way or differently. Yeah, I've been puzzled by, frankly, Beijing's approach to the relationship with Tokyo, because frankly, I mean, as I said, the emphasis that Japan still has on the economic relationship gives Beijing potentially some purchase there if it were to change its approach to the relationship with Tokyo. But it has shown no signs of doing so. I'd say the same thing, though, about other relationships for China in the region with Australia, for example, with the Philippines. These are all places where a different approach might yield more progress and sort of blunt the U.S. effort to strengthen alliances. But for whatever reason, Beijing seems unable, at least so far, to do so. I wonder how, over time, Beijing will internalize the changes represented by Japan's national security strategy, right? In other words, for the first time, the prospect of a Japan with capabilities 
that can, you know, strike targets inside mainland China in a way they haven't been able to before. A Japan that is spending 1.6, 1 1.7% of GDP on defense in combination with the pretty robust diplomacy and the tools of economic statecraft that Japan is so effective at practicing. I wonder if over time this has the effect of perhaps changing a perception in Beijing, if in fact there is one, that Japan is just a derivative actor of the United States, changes the perception that actually Japan is, is a more credible actor on its own, including in the defense and military space. Because that's clearly the trajectory. I think that Japan has signaled that it intends to, to go down. Not, not as separation from the United States. The alliance is only going to get deeper as a result of these changes. But the point is the totality of Japanese national power is going to change as a result of what it is signaled it is going to invest in going forward. I think on a lot of these issues, if that feedback loop was well-functioning, Beijing would, of course, correct it on some important issues many times over the last sort of five or so years. It feels like making blunt admissions that their own actions had catalyst effect A, B, and C, I just think that's hard politically for them. And so that's why, you know, their frame for everything is the United States as puppet master and no ally in the region has agency. And that kicks them in the butt every time because then they underestimate you know, what the negative knock-on effects are going to be of their own sort of actions. Yeah. And so what, I, I wonder, you know, whether the, the visit of Marcos, you know, the new president of the Philippines to Beijing, seemed to me that she, in those meetings, did sort of have a different tone in the way he engaged Marcos and the way he talked about the future of, of the, China's relationship with the Philippines. So I don't know. I don't know whether you think that's a signal of at least an attempt to show a softer face in the region. But it, it did strike me as an interesting departure from where we've been over the last couple of years. Arguing against myself, I would say it actually in several meetings Xi Jinping has had since the 20th Party Congress, the tone has been marginally more measured. I think this was the case with Chancellor Schultz's visit. You've seen this in a number of cases where, and I think it has led to the impression that Xi Jinping has eaten some humble pie. And I just, I'm a slightly wary of overcourse correcting that we're now going to see a sort of more responsive, self-effacing form. I think China's going through some really significant issues right now. There's good strategic reasons why I think Xi Jinping is sort of tapping the brakes a little bit. But I think there's so many pathologies in the decision-making process right now that I have a hard time seeing these sustain. And let me use that as another clumsy segue to, I think, another question Mike and I wanted to get your take on, which is the issue of Taiwan, which is one where China has been singularly incapable of any significant strategic course corrections to lower the temperature. I wanted to just first, and, and want Mike to jump in here, but wanted to get your sense, can you give us a level set of where the discussion on Taiwan sits within the Kashida administration, but the strategic community more broadly? What's the delta between where the discussion here is in the United States, both in terms of the threats we're focusing on, you know, more to the outlier invasion scenarios the extent to which there's a discussion in Tokyo about when and where and to what extent Japan would have to get involved if it comes to any of these kinetic scenarios. Yeah, this is this is an issue with some nuance, I think. First of all, first point I make is when I first joined OSD in 2010, you could sort of whisper Taiwan in the hallway to Japanese official counterparts, but it was very hard, basically impossible to have an open discussion about contingency response, cooperation in the Taiwan crisis. It was just a taboo issue. And we are in a fundamentally different place on that front today. I mean, there's always been a strain of the LDP, as Mike knows well, that has nurtured close ties with Taiwan. 
but I think you have a much broader basis of affinity in the Japanese political system for Taiwan itself. You have a much clearer recognition across the Japanese system of the implications for Japanese security of a cross-strait conflict. Numerous Japanese political leaders, Abe, Aso, others, have used this framing that a Taiwan contingency is a Japan contingency, right? Or something along those lines. So the idea that Japan has the ability to stay out of a cross-strait conflict, that Japan can somehow insulate itself from the consequences of a conflict, I think those days are gone. I think there's a recognition that if the balloon does indeed go up, Japan will have to be involved. And so like in the old days, you know, we used to debate inside the Pentagon, would Japan let us use our bases in the event of a crisis? I don't worry about that really anymore. I think that's fair to assume that the United States will be able to make use of its bases to respond to a Taiwan crisis. Now, I think the important point to make, though, is that sometimes that translates into an overread of where Japan is and what Japan would be willing and able to do in a crisis, by which I mean, I think there's a very clear focus on strengthening Japan's ability to defend its territory to defend its its maritime domain and to defend its airspace in the event of a crisis. And that's what all this buildup in the Southwest Islands is about. I think the question of could Japan join a fight to defend Taiwan, very different, I think, set of calculations. Partly there are legal issues that would come into play about whether a collective self-defense scenario could be declared in the event of a Taiwan crisis. But more importantly, I think I would describe the consensus is if there's a conflict in the Taiwan Strait, Japan's interests will be impacted. It will have to be prepared to take action to defend Japanese territory. But what role it plays beyond that would be very much contingent on the scenario, on the political leadership in Tokyo. There's a lot of gray in what the law allows and doesn't allow. It very much depends. That's why I said there's there's nuance. Japan has definitely moved, but we shouldn't interpret it as signing up to defend Taiwan. At least that's my view. Well, I mean, if you're talking about a scenario where the U.S. has to decide and debate whether or not to use force, for example, to break a blockade, then, yeah, I can imagine Tokyo having a lot of influence on the U.S. debate and perhaps being it's hard to say which side would be more cautious, by the way. It really does depend on who the president and prime minister is. But I could see the Japanese side in that scenario saying, hold on, let's try diplomacy or economic sanctions or something before we go kinetic. But if you're talking a full up fight, an actual fight, and I think this is what you were implying earlier, it's impossible for me to see Japan not being involved. I mean, I was in the Pentagon for the 95, uh, 96 Taiwan Strait crisis, which was a narrow cross-strait crisis. And we had the ability to send two carrier battle groups lollygagging down the first island chain now it's a whole island chain, first and second island chain, not just Taiwan, Japan, first island chain, but Guam and the Pacific Islands even. And so it's a much broader front in the Chinese military strategy that's evolving. And the Chinese are making sure the Japanese know. They, you know, when Pelosi went, they fired missiles into Japan's EEZ. And some of the Japanese islands are, what, 70 clicks from Taiwan? So it seems to me if Japan is building up to defend its southwest islands and its airspace, it's in the fight. This geography doesn't really give them an option. But the nuance, I think, Chris, probably comes in when you're talking about a scenario where China makes a move and then we have to decide whether or not to escalate. Really, it's hard to say which way Tokyo or Washington would go. You know, I could imagine scenarios, couldn't you, where Japan actually might be more hawkish than an American president? No, I, I think that's right. In a, in, a, in a kinetic scenario, 
as I said, I think there's no question, I think that Japan would be in. And the, these debates that we used to have about use of bases and whatnot are really no longer relevant, in my view. I think the question is sort of when you think about the roles that Japan could play, right? How far could you push the envelope? Could you imagine ASW operations in the, in the Bashi Channel, for example? That's where I think things get harder, right? But conversations that I suspect that the Pentagon is seeking to advance. But certainly, I agree with you that the geography is such that certainly in that area, sort of to the north and east of Taiwan, where there will be dense operational activity in the event of a conflict, Japanese are in. They'll support us and they'll defend themselves if they have to. I was raised in the Japan world, Chris, like you, under the, you know, in the orbit of Rich Armitage and, and Jim Kelly and all these, and Jim Auer and all these giants who built the alliance in the 80s and the Reagan Nakasone years. And I read, um, quote, Jim Auer, who was, had the job you had in the Pentagon back in the 80s. And after the Cold War, Auer was quoted as saying, basically, all this stuff we did with Japan to fortify the Japanese archipelago and contain the Soviets, the, the Russians never tested it. And had they had, we probably wouldn't have been ready. Which kind of raises the question, as we've said, the capabilities are going to increase, the willingness has increased. Is Japan ready for prime time? I mean, if there is a contingency, what's the biggest worry you have about actually being able to execute it as an alliance and on the Japanese side in particular? Yeah, it's sort of the fundamental question, isn't it, Mike? I think we still have work to do. The things that Japan has announced in the national defense strategy are exceptionally positive. Right. The investment in counterstrike capability, increased investments in integrated air and missile defense, even just sort of seemingly small things like investments in munition stocks and hardening of facilities. All of that is very welcome, but it's going to take time to implement. And there is a risk I see of, you know, for all the increase in resources, the peanut butter getting spread too thin, trying to do too much in your defense agenda. Despite all the extra money, there's a lot that Japan has said that it wants to do. So that's one piece. It'll take time for some of these capabilities to come online. And there's there's a risk of spreading effort too thin. The second piece is just decision making. I do think we've gotten a lot better. I think the density of communication at all levels is very different from the way it used to be. I think the creation of the NSC has had a profound impact on Japan's ability to coordinate the tools of national power and to prepare leaders to respond. I saw that very much in the run-up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where you know the fact that we had been briefing the National Security Council on what we were seeing enabled Japan to act very quickly when the time came and to join the West in, in sanctions and so on. So we're in a better better place than, than we used to be. And I think Japan is putting itself on a track to put real capability in place, but we've never been tested. And so, you know, these questions about how will we, when we really have to respond together in an operational way to a military crisis in Northeast Asia, will we be ready? I think a lot of uncertainty about that still, despite the progress made. So to wrap up, Chris, I want to ask you about the Japan chair at CSIS. You orchestrated my exile to Australia so you could take my job. No, I uh, willingly and excitedly, with the family, moved to the U.S. Studies Center at the University of Sydney and still have a perch at CSIS, thankfully, as the Kissinger chair, but totally thrilled that you agreed to come out of the NSC, as I did 15 years ago, to take on the Japan chair. Relationship's very strong. And that said, you can't go to a think tank and put out a report saying, nope, we're good. Everything's great. Steady as she goes, right? There are issues. So beyond the ones you just mentioned on the military side, what are some of the things on your agenda as the Japan chair? What do you think people need to be focusing on? What should we look for from your work? 
Yeah. So uh, in the next few months, we were doing a series of efforts related to looking at, again, looking at Japan's defense priorities. But one particular area that I am looking to get off the ground in the next six months or so is on this Taiwan question. And in particular, thinking about how we build channels of crisis management and crisis communication among Washington, Tokyo, and Taipei. I think the absence of those channels was very much on display in August, where we, frankly, the three governments struggled to coordinate even the basics of strategic messaging, right? There was this incident in which the Japanese were the first to announce that a missile had overflown Taiwan, and the Taiwans were not pleased that the Japanese had announced it. Well, that speaks to the, the lack of mechanisms in place to facilitate coordination, crisis management, crisis comms. So that's a particular project that I'm hoping to get off the ground in 2023 and to work through perhaps in a scenario-based discussion with key folks in each of those three governments, or at least in a track two sense, to begin to think that through a little more systematically. I mean, for all of the affinity, as you know well, Mike, for all of the affinity you see in Japan toward Taiwan, the official channels are not that strong. And there's a reason for that. And it's all a function of Japan's own sort of version of a one China policy. But there's clearly, I think, a need, and I think our friends in Japan recognize this, to build some more ability to, to communicate and coordinate at the government level. That's a really important agenda item for you. And I'm sure it's not the only thing that Japan is doing, but it's a big one. And think tanks can usefully play that bridging role and have conversations that, as you and I know, are hard when you're in government. So really important. So, you know, our allies everywhere complain about the American system. It has its strengths and weaknesses in terms of conceptualizing and executing strategy. One thing we have is the system that allows the Chris Johnstones to thrive, to do deep, deep study of the region, to work in different parts of the U.S. government, and to bring that institutional knowledge, those relationships in the government and with allies throughout your career, and then to come out to a place like CSIS and really share that knowledge and continue building the agenda. So the country's lucky to have you, CSIS is lucky to have you, and especially Jude and I are lucky to have you <laughs> on your evening, my morning for the Asia Chessboard. So thanks and good luck with all your projects. Thanks, Mike. It's a real honor to be able to be at CSIS uh, and to try to carry the torch forward uh, on the Japan chair and Jude to sit just down the hallway from you. So really appreciate this chance and, and look forward to more going forward. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.